All right, well, let's start out, start out with author tonight, and it's going to get author and date out of the way, and then we'll talk about special considerations and uh, the doctoral, doctrinal contributions. Uh, there's a lot of uh, details in Colossians, and it seems like um, Paul took a lot and just crammed it into a small little epistle. And, um, and I wonder if perhaps he was rushed for some reason, or I don't know, but he crammed it all in here. And it's, if you stretched it out, you could really say a lot more. And perhaps that's true about uh, many of the other uh, epistles of Paul. So anyway, uh, authorship, uh, as you already probably know, uh, we attribute uh, historically uh, authorship to Paul. Of course, internally that's obvious because he identifies himself in chapter 1, verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 23, and then at the end, chapter 4, verse 18, uh, he penned the letter himself, apparently. Now, uh, there are critics to Paul's authorship. Um, I don't think there's very good uh, critical analysis, but let's uh, just point some of the, the things that they say. Paul uses some 34 words that are new to him that he doesn't use in his other epistles. And so they say because Paul has used a vocabulary uh, not typically used by him, that it can't be him. I don't think that that is much of an argument to bring to the table. Uh, I think it's kind of strange. Um, I think it would be true that if you were addressing a, a particular audience, you would probably change your vocabulary. Um, you would change your vocabulary uh, depending on the content that you were addressing, right? And, uh, and you, would, you would probably use the vocabulary of certain people, perhaps that you were quoting. So if you've ever taught Sunday school to uh, fifth graders, you probably used a different vocabulary. Uh, if you were even talking to older and mature people but didn't have the experience you had, uh, you would probably use a different vocabulary. Uh, an example maybe between the, the difference between the two is the church in Ephesus got to spend more time with Paul than any other church. Uh, but what about Colossae? You met people from there, but there's no evidence that Paul ever went to Colossae. Uh, somebody else planted it, and so he would use uh, language that he believed they could probably keep up with uh, but also, I think it's really important that the circumstances that were um, possibly being birthed uh, theologically out of Colossae uh, would demand that Paul use different language. And we'll talk about that a little bit uh, later. There's, there's many good reasons to accept Paul's authorship. Uh, all of the earliest manuscripts bear his name, of course, not the original autograph. Uh, the earliest fathers of the church, they all recognize it. Uh, we've mentioned Marcion before. Marcion was a heretic. He was an enemy of the church, uh, but he liked to take certain letters of Paul especially and then twist their meaning. Uh, but as a critic of the church itself, he recognized Paul as the author of Colossians, for whatever that's worth. The style of writing is certainly Paul's. And uh, what is very interesting about Ephesians is if you've read, I'm not, I'm not Ephesians, but Colossians, if you've read them back to back, what did you notice? Very similar. Almost half of the verses are the same, okay? And uh, Paul was no doubt the author of Ephesians. So anyway, Paul's the author. He penned it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. What about the date? Uh, the evidence leads to a date of about 60 AD. Uh, that would be during Paul's uh, Roman imprisonment, but early on. Uh, we see that in Acts 28. Um, it was written at the same time as the book of Ephesians and Philemon. Let me give you a few reasons for that. Both Ephesians and Colossians were, and uh, well, not Philemon wasn't delivered by Tychicus. Uh, 
if that's how you say his name. Uh, but the, the one who delivered Philemon was with him. Who was that? Probably Onesimus, okay, the runaway slave. Okay. Uh, Tychicus was definitely the one who uh, delivered Ephesians and Colossians. It says that in Ephesians 6.21 and Colossians 4.7. Now, it was written before Philippians. Don't confuse Philippians and Philemon. Uh, written before Philippians, which was penned in about 61 and 62 AD. Because in Colossians, there's no mention of Paul's imminent release from prison, whereas in Philippians, he says it three or four times. Okay? Uh, if Paul had known that he was going to be released, uh, he probably would have mentioned that. I don't think that's a detail that you would leave out uh, if you're writing to loved ones, especially if you were trying to encourage them. Because that is the very thing that he was encouraging the Philippians with, one of the things. I asked Roger if, if he was in prison down in Mexico and his family wasn't able to do anything about it. But he knew that in the next week or so he was getting out and he was writing a letter to his family. I think he would write and say, hey, I got good news, I'm getting out. It would be a strange detail to leave out, uh, especially if you needed a ride home. Okay. So anyway, uh, there's also a lot of the men that were with Paul um, uh, that are they're, they're mentioned together in Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon, but they're not mentioned with Philippians. Okay, when you when all of those people are together at the same time, uh, that suggests that the the letter was written at the same time because Paul didn't let people sit still long. Okay, he was always sending them out, and so these people happen to be together, uh, and they're mentioned in his letter. Um, Onesimus, as I mentioned, he accompanied uh, Tychicus to Ephesus and Colossae, and uh, probably the one to give the letter to Philemon. Probably, probably an awkward moment for him. Yeah, we'll get there later on. Let me just read Colossians 4, 7 through 9 to you. He says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you? Uh, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Colossians 4, 7 through 9. So anyway, when we put all of this uh, external evidence together, um, from at least, not external, but all of the, the details uh, from the various letters, we come to about 60 AD, early on in Paul's first imprisonment. All right, interesting things about the book. As I said, uh, it's very similar to Ephesians. About half the verses are the same. And where they differ, Paul was addressing something specific to their individual circumstances and probably answering some questions, probably answering some of those. Uh, Ephesians was written to emphasize unity in the body. Uh, we talked about that in Ephesians. Uh, the church is, or the, the book of Ephesians is, seems to be primarily mentioned to Gentiles. Uh, he's, he's constantly speaking to them, uh, but it never really says that he's speaking to the Jews. So there's this apparent conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, so Paul is talking about unity in the body. But in Colossians, uh, Paul is addressing false teachings in the community. And he's addressing a number of them. Uh, he's talking about Jewish legalism, the, the precursors of Gnosticism, mysticism, and asceticism. All kinds of weird stuff going on in Colossae. I don't know what it was about Colossae that all of those things converge there. We would think they would converge like in Antioch or in, uh, of uh, Tarsus or um, Athens, because those were the two think tanks uh, in, in the ancient world at that time. But it's, it's arising out of Colossae. Not, I'm not certain why. 
um, in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, Paul seems to make it clear that he had not visited Colossae, or the other church he mentions is Laodicea, uh, one of the seven churches of um, Revelation. Yeah. Um, there, there seems to be good reason that those churches were planted either during or subsequent to Paul's visit in Ephesus. Here's the reasons why. In Acts 19.10, it says that all of Asia had heard the word of the Lord Jesus through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So his time there, uh, discipling people uh, and sending them out, it appears that Paul didn't have to go uh, to these other, these other churches in the Lycus Valley. Uh, Demetrius, you remember the idol maker in Ephesus, he had complained that Paul had turned many away from idols throughout almost all Asia, Acts 19, 26. So the word is really spreading out of uh, Ephesians, and uh, those churches were being reached around there. Uh, Colossians 1, 7 basically tells us that Epaphras was the one that planted the church in Colossae, Epaphras. We don't know much of anything about Epaphras, except that he was a, some type of leader, church planter in Colossae. Um, also, in Colossians 1.27, it, it seems to imply pretty strongly that the majority of the church is Gentile. Okay? And Paul is either addressing uh, what is uh, uh, currently going on in Colossae, or he's preparing them for other things that will be going on, especially Jewish legalism. What else? I mentioned the issue of Gnosticism. Um, I will mention at the end the... Uh, the letter from the Laodiceans, perhaps you've read that in chapter 4, and uh, I thought, what is that all about? Uh, it says that the, uh, the letter was to be sent, uh, so the, the letter to the Colossians was to be sent to the Laodiceans. The letter that the Laodiceans had, however they got it, uh, was to be sent to Colossae. How many of you guys have read various theories on that? One of my favorite Bible scholars says, this issue has gotten way too much attention. And he's right. There are so many uh, ideas about uh, the nature and origin of this letter. Uh, some scholars believe that it was actually the letter that was sent to Ephesus that Paul had meant as a letter for circulation, not specifically to the Ephesians. And then there's some, some things they mention in grammar and things like that, uh, possibly. Uh, but anyway, they say that it went to Ephesians. It was meant to be circulated. It went to Laodicea. And Paul wanted to make sure that it had gone to Colossae. Others believe that it was a personal letter to the Laodiceans that was lost okay, and wasn't copied and then circulated. Uh, that's possible, whatever. I don't really have a position because um, none of the positions that are out there uh, really make any difference regarding God's revelation to the church. They don't make any difference. What we have uh, is sufficient for life and godliness. It's, it's able, as Paul says to Timothy, to equip us for every good work, uh, to make the man of God perfect, things like that. So it, there's nothing to, to fret over when it comes to this. We have the bigger things to worry about, I think. What about doctrine? Doctrine. Um, like uh, Philippians 2, uh, Colossians uh, 1, 15 through 20, provides this this. Uh, brief Christological section. Uh, but when we were in Philippians, we were saying that Paul was addressing that uh, for our example. But in Colossians, it's all apologetic. It's all a logical defense for the Christian faith uh, against an attack of heresy. So listen to this, the way that Paul crams all this together. Real short section, verse, chapter 2, verse 15 through 22. 
He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. He's the firstborn over all creation, verse, born, uh, verse 15. Have you guys ever tripped on, on those, that phrase, the firstborn over, the firstborn of? Uh, firstborn means first in place or priority, uh, not in time. Uh, and overall creation uh, doesn't mean that he was created, but that he stands preeminently overall creation. When you go to the Old Testament especially, we see that kind of used um, maybe even as an idiom. Uh, many things are called the firstborn, and they're not. And they're not the firstborn. David is called the firstborn, but he was the lastborn of Jesse. Uh, Israel is called uh, God's firstborn. And uh, oftentimes when we look at uh, who is actually the firstborn, was treated as the secondborn. Uh, you look at Jacob's sons. Who was treated as the firstborn? Joseph was. When you look at Isaac and Ishmael, who was firstborn in time? Ishmael. Who was treated as the firstborn? Yeah, God even said, take now your son, your only son. Okay? Uh, we see it quite often in the scriptures. Jacob and Esau the same way. Um, doesn't necessarily mean the firstborn in time, but the one of, of priority. Paul also says that he's the creator of all things. He says everything came through him, was created for him, verse 16. He says that he is eternal, verse 17. He's the sustainer of all things that he's created, verse 17. He's the head of the body, verse 18. He is the beginning, verse 18. Very strange. Uh, it, it means source or the originating power. That's a, that's a big statement. He's the firstborn from the dead. We see that again. It's, again, it's not first in time or first in sequence, but priority. Uh, how many people rose from the dead before Jesus? Lazarus. Well, not just New Testament, right? There's Jairus' daughter. There's Lazarus. There's also the, um, uh, the widow's son, right? Uh, Elisha, uh, wasn't his body laid in the grave? And then the guy that he touched jumped up and was risen. So many people in time were raised uh, before Jesus, uh, but none of those resurrections carried any, we might say, redemptive uh, consequences to it. Uh, Jesus is the one that has priority. It's the important resurrection. Um, and also, he's the first to rise and never die again. Yeah, sort of a big deal. Uh, Paul also says, in him all the fullness dwells. Fullness meaning uh, the, the, the plurema, the, 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 the meaning deity and power, the fullness of it. Uh, he's, that's verse 19. He's called the reconciler, verse 20. The reconciler of all things in heaven and earth. Verse 20, he's the peacemaker. And in verse 22, he is the sanctifier. Paul takes all of that and he just crams it into a couple verses. And then he adds more of this in chapter 2, saying that Christ is the treasury of wisdom and knowledge. What a neat title. He's the treasury of wisdom and knowledge. That's chapter um, 2, verse 3. He's the abode of the deity, verse 9. He's the head of all principality and power. And so principality and power in the scriptures is always demons and angels, okay? All spirits. He's the head. He's the boss. He's the giver of life, uh, both um, biological life and spiritual life through regeneration. That's verse 13. And he's the forgiver of sins, verse 13. Now, you could probably spend years unpacking all of the theology uh, of, of those few verses there. Plenty to drown yourself in. Now this is interesting because Paul, it, he's not spending a lot of time defining those things, is he? He's just throwing them out there. 
Now, there are some, some brief follow-up statements, but when he just says he's the firstborn from among the dead, he's the firstborn over all creation, he's not spending any time explaining himself. He's just throwing these declarations out there, one after another. It's like a, a fire hose in your mouth. And, but the, the, the cool thing about this is that I think that Paul's intent is, is that by stating these truths about Jesus, it precludes a ton of error, a ton of error. I don't know if the animal game is unique to my family when we drive down the freeway, but Malia loves to play the animal game. Right, Malia? That's right. So what it is is Malia always, you know, initiates, and then, of course, she gets to go first, but she says, okay, have an animal, and then we all have to ask questions, but it has to yield a yes or no response. So it's this huge game of a process of elimination. And so I, I cut to the chase immediately because... Well, there's a lot of animals out there. And so the first question I ask is, is it a mammal? Now, Malia used to always go, what's a mammal? Or she would go, no. And then we'd ask more questions. We'd learn that it was a mammal. But anyway, Malia's sharp cookie now. And then I would say, does it eat other animals? Does it live in Washington? So, so all I'm just going through is this process of elimination. Because if, I say it's, if she says it's a mammal, it eliminates all non-mammals. If it eats other animals, and so forth. I think the, the same process that Paul is using here. I'm just going to throw all this information out there, and by nature of what I'm affirming, it will, it will, you can be able to reject all these other things that are being said out there about Christ. Affirmations don't just affirm who and what Jesus is. They exclude him from being other things. The truths that are mentioned uh, in verse 15 through 20 of chapter 1 make it impossible for Jesus to be the Jesus of Gnosticism. It's impossible for him to be the Jesus of Islam, of Mormonism, of Jehovah's Witness, of Oneness Pentecostalism, and any kind of Eastern religion. All you have to do with the cult is when they make their claims about Jesus, you can just filter them through Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 22, and you'll go, nope, nope, different guy, different guy. Uh, just like with um, you know, the Mormons, they always say that Jesus is a created uh, being, created first as a spirit baby uh, by the Heavenly Father who um, produced through the Heavenly Mother, and then he acquired a body, and then, then he became a god and things like that. But they say that he, he only preexisted in the spirit form, but not eternally. But in Colossians, Paul says that he is before all things. He's the creator of everything. Nothing existed prior to him. He is the beginning. Okay, absolutely. So anyway, uh, also a, a comparable apologetic to Colossians 1 is Hebrews 1. The very similar language, the conclusions are the same. And I would say there's, there's some statements in Colossians 1 that are very powerful. And then when you go to Hebrews chapter 1, you have all these statements about the Father talking about the Son and calling Him God and calling Him Yahweh. And those are, are very powerful too. Anyway, lots of theology there. Uh, let's move on before I run out of time. Well, I'm not running out of time. I thought I was going to run out of really fast. So let's look at the outline. Uh, now, because of Gabe, I, I did my own. I didn't steal it from Dr. Geisler. This one's original. <laughs> I like to blame you. So uh, the first here, I just have a Christ theology, which we've just got done talking about for the most part, and then a gospel apology or defense. Um, yeah, uh, chapter one course, begins with Paul's uh, typical introduction, greeting the church with grace and peace and informing the church about his prayers 
for them. I love the, the pastoral introductions of Paul because um, Paul is just so sweet on people. Uh, he's eager to see them. Uh, he says that I pray for you constantly. He says to them, as soon as I heard that there was a church in Colossae, I started praying for you guys all the time. And uh, I can't wait someday to just meet you, be with you, and to be a blessing to you. Just like he told the Romans, I've never met you, uh, but I hope to come to you someday so that I might impart some spiritual blessing to you guys. Uh, just such a, a sweet uh, kind of pastoral heart. Um, immediately after that, of course, is that robust um, declaration of Christ's deity, uh, 15 through 23. Um, and Paul says that uh, revealing these truths to the Gentile, which he calls a mystery. So mystery is things that were concealed in the past, unknown uh, prior to then to the Gentiles, is now being revealed to them. That's what a mystery means uh, in the Greek. He says, that is the purpose for my calling, verse 16 through 23. Interesting calling. Um, we'll talk about that more in Galatians. Uh, Paul says that Peter was called to the Jews. I was called to the Gentiles. That's why I, I exist. Um, in 2.8, uh, Paul moves from theology to an apology. Uh, of course, he's not saying sorry. Apology in the Greek means to make a logical defense. And we've already said he's warning, and he's, he's um, uh, preemptively, perhaps even, getting ready for uh, these various heresies. We mentioned Gnosticism, Jewish legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. Uh, asceticism... You, you, you would think that Paul's address here about asceticism would have freed the church uh, from asceticism. But after the apostles died, asceticism set in so deeply uh, into especially the clergy of the church. Now, asceticism is where uh, you, you neglect your body for spiritual reasons. Uh, you, uh, um, you even, uh, some ascetic, we, they call them the ascetic saints, they would even abuse their bodies, they would, uh, you know, flagellations and things, beating themselves. Uh, we find uh, asceticism is really big today still in the Catholic Church. Um, nuns in Romania will put pebbles in their pockets to punish themselves throughout the day as for penance. Um, the early ascetics, uh, they, they wouldn't eat any animal food uh, for spiritual reasons, uh, for the same reason um, uh, it plays into it is the monks and the priests wouldn't marry uh, because any type of uh, sexual relations is considered carnal, even uh, well, the, the desire for it. Uh, so if you want to get married and, and all of that, that's why the, they were very much against second uh, marriage, marrying a second time, because that was just indulging. And so what it is, it's just the neglect of the body. It's the, the abuse of the body. Any pleasures should be excluded. So initially, the ascetic saints would go out into the desert uh, to be monks, that is, to be alone. And uh, one lived at the top of a pole, essentially, and would have food. Uh, he, would, you know, he would bring up food, and, and he was just being excluded from the world and being holy, uh, a false idea about being separate, uh, all kinds of problems. But Paul addresses asceticism in uh, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And he just says it's nonsense. It's nonsense. Uh, if you want to fast temporarily to seek God's face, uh, as 1 Corinthians 7 says, that's one thing. Uh, but to create this lifestyle of just the denial of the flesh, and I don't mean sinful desire, but just enjoyment. Uh, God created us to enjoy life. And so, I mean, life without animal food is 
I mean, for some people, it's okay. It doesn't go for me too well. Next is the Christian's sanctity. Uh, Paul gets all of his theology off of his chest. He loved theology. He hated heresy, so he could really get it out there. And then he goes into the Christian's sanctity as it's related to our conduct. It's chapter 3, 1 through 17. It has to do with, um, he, he begins by avoiding the conduct, uh, the appetites of the old man. The old man is verse 1 through 11. And then he goes into walking as God's elect people. What do God's elect people look like? John actually spoke on that Sunday. That's Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 17. Uh, our family also has that memorized, and we're trying to master by grace through the Spirit the principles there. Um, they're lofty, but they're, they're worth it. Uh, and the, the, the governance of God in our lives should uh, work itself out in the home. Verse 18 through 21, the workplace. Verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. That is one of the strangest chapter breaks in all the Bible. Uh, Paul is on a roll uh, talking about family dynamics, work ethics, and then chapter break. And then one verse in the next chapter, he finishes his thought. So thanks to the guys that did that to us. It should also impact our prayer life, chapter 4, verse 2 through 4. And then Paul ends with this discussion about our wise conduct before the unbelieving world. Now, I love the way that Paul ends that because of all the heresies that he lists in Colossae, um, that's chaos. It's theological chaos. Um, all kinds of uh, thoughts in the, this marketplace of ideas in Colossae. For whatever reason, uh, it's bad. And then Paul says to them, what I want you to do is I want you to walk in wisdom before those who are outside, okay? That, you, that your words would be seasoned with grace, okay? they would be salty, uh, so that you might know how to answer them. You might not answer. And I think right now that's really good application for us. You know, all kinds of of uh, secular theology is exploding in the West right now, okay? Uh, I think there's even going to be religions uh, developed around the whole COVID-19 thing. It'll probably be a government cult of some kind. Uh, but then there's the, the, the Black Lives Matter, and some of the, that has been spiritualized of late. I was reading an article, uh, an interview of one of the, um, the founders, and She's into necromancy. She was raised Jehovah's Witness, and now she's consulting the dead who have been killed by police that their spirits would energize the movement. Uh, so we have that. We have uh, Antifa and you know, all kinds of uh, strange things with all of the other things that are out there. And I think more than ever, we need to take heed to Paul's words that uh, we can get involved in the heat and the debate and the anger and the outrage, or we can walk in wisdom and we can have our words seasoned with grace because the people right now that need good, solid answers are those people. Those are the people that we're trying to reach. And we can uh, be opposed to them, which we are in our theology, of course. We are in our lifestyle and things like that. But we're trying to win them. And uh, yeah. And I think if you want to see the effectiveness of just bringing opposition, just look at Fox News versus CNN. Uh, I, have, I don't see a lot of converts uh, from CNN or vice versa. It's just debate. It's just attacking one another. And uh, we need to try to win, be winsome. And then finally, uh, in verse uh, 7 through 18, uh, Paul informs the Colossians about his, his couriers, Dechaicus and Onesimus. He sends greetings from various people, the people that are with him. 
He has the church greet other people in Colossae, uh, along with the believers and the church leaders in Laodicea. It's, it's interesting how quickly uh, the church uh, created unity from city to city without social media, people walking back and forth. Uh, the churches were just very close-knit, and then there was no denominations, which is just sweet. Uh, all of the churches were independent. Uh, that's very clear from the scriptures, and um, that's actually one of the reasons we're with Calvary Chapel. If the churches were not independent, we would jump ship. We would start an independent movement. Yeah. Um, again, he instructs the Colossians to send his letter on to the church in Laodicea. And then, of course, they're to read the letter from the Laodiceans. He gives instructions to this man named Archippus, who has a ministry. Don't know much about what he's saying, but Archippus obviously knew what Paul was saying. And then, as usual, uh, Paul says, goodbye, grace be with you, or peace be with you, rather. Any questions? I got a couple minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, So when your Christology is wrong, it turns into works, righteousness? Yeah. Well, I think it gets the atonement wrong to begin with, because... If there wasn't a trinity, let's say that there was tritheism, like the Mormons say, um, you could still have a gospel of grace, which, by, by the way, now they're affirming. They're affirming that we're not saved by works, but we're saved by grace. And then, so it's more like, but it, works is still uh, required for sustaining your salvation. So it's more like Seventh-day Adventism. Uh, yeah, that's right, that's right. And what it is, is their intent since about the late... 90s has been to um, try to create vocabulary and um, uh, some unity, if they can, theologically with evangelicals. And in fact, um, evangelicals are the number one convert to Mormonism. But anyway, I don't think it requires a trinity to have a grace gospel. Uh, I think it requires a, a proper understanding of the atonement. And so, like, for example, the Catholics, they, um, when they were trying to find Catholics and evangelicals were trying to find theological unity so that we could have fellowship together. Um, they, they formed theologians on both sides. They got together, and they were looking at all these different areas of theology that we can agree on. And then when they got to the atonement and its relationship to the doctrine of justification, um, everything was fine. They published it, and they're saying, see, we're really not that different. Martin Luther was crazy. That's essentially what they were saying. But then a few theologians looked it over and said, in this whole atonement as it's related to the doctrine of justification, the Catholics will not use the word impute. The theologians would not. And, and so they tried to get them to use that language from Romans chapter 4, and uh, they wouldn't. And that ended that whole thing. And so they have a doctrine of works. Uh, they have the Trinity right, by the way, uh, but they have what we would say soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, is completely wrong. But yeah, all of, the, uh, all of the cults out there have the gospel wrong. Yeah, so I don't know if the Trinity or lack of Trinity lends itself to that. But you cannot be saved uh, unless you believe in the Trinity because you don't actually believe in God. You believe in uh, an invention about God. And that's really the, the, um, the definition of idolatry. So I wasn't expecting that question. Well, stand up and let's pray then. I have a book, by the way, about that whole interaction between the, the Catholics and evangelicals. It's very, very good. It's called Getting the Gospel Right. All right, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for books, uh, letters like Colossians. Um, we don't know all the circumstances surrounding uh, the, the theological 
climate there. We just know some of the things that were happening. We don't know how they developed. We can see how some of them developed in history, and um, they're, they're haunting us today. Just error, confusion about who Christ is and what he did. So Lord, I pray that you would help us through our study of books like Colossians, that you would clarify to us the identity of Christ, the work of Christ, so that we might communicate better with those who are outside of Christ. And um, so just sharpen our minds and give us a heart, Lord, for help us to be winsome, to be wise, and Lord, that our words would be seasoned with grace. So Lord, thank you for my church family, and I just pray that you'd encourage our hearts this week and bless them. In Jesus' name, amen.